So as I had mentioned, one of the big aesthetics here at 10th Ward is I always say people way more intelligent than me came before us, figured out how to do this distilling thing. But rather than just recreating something that somebody else has done, we like to take that knowledge, dig down deep, and then find ways that we can create a unique twist on it. Uh, as obviously this is audio, so people can't see, but we are sitting under a big painted sign on the wall that says Ward Off Ordinary. That is kind of our motto, our raison d'etre, if you would. This is Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, a podcast that shines a light on the best winemakers, craft brewers, and spirit distillers in the DMV. So grab a glass of your favorite adult beverage. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and let's get started. Thank you, Asia, and hello and welcome to the second episode of my podcast, Barrel Tasting. I am Howard Fletcher, and today I'm going to speak with Mark Viertaler. I think I got that name right. I destroy names on the regular, so, but I think I got this one right. He's the head distiller of 10th Ward Distilling Company in Frederick, Maryland. And yeah, I had such a good time here in Frederick last week that I decided to come back because I had to tell you about this place. So let me tell you a little something about where I'm visiting. The owner, Monica Pierce, She's been a game changer in Frederick's craft beverage scene since she opened 10th Ward Distilling in 2016. This is the first woman-owned distillery in Maryland. It's located in what used to be the 10th Ward of Frederick City, and they specialize in a variety of year-round spirits. But dig this, they claim to be producing Maryland's first absinthe. Yeah, I'm talking about absinthe, and this stuff is real, folks. You gotta check it out. And not only that, they have a passion for developing small batch, one-time only, limited releases. This place is pretty cool. So I was thrilled when their head distiller agreed to sit down with me to have a conversation about their special niche in the market and Maryland distilling, because they're doing some cool stuff. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with Mark Viertaler of 10th Ward Distilling. Let's all raise a glass. Mark Viertaler. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I know you guys are really busy, but uh, I had to come up here. Now I'm doing, I don't know if I told you this when I sent you my email. Mm -hmm. This is a relatively new podcast. In fact, by the time we're doing this, it hasn't even dropped yet. Gotcha. I used to do one in which I um, interviewed winemakers and craft brewers. Yes. And uh, when I decided to do barrel tasting, I wanted to bring in distillers. Number one, always for selfish reasons. <laughs> I don't know anything about distilling. Very little. I know okay. I know about drinking. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know much about distilling, but I'm very intrigued by it. Mm -hmm. And so I found, being a journalist, that one of the best ways to learn something is to go talk to the people that do it. Oh, yeah. And so when I came up, I wanted to expand. I, you know, I focused on the DMV. Mm -hmm. And when I expanded, I wanted to include Frederick maybe Richmond and some other areas in the Mid-Atlantic. And uh, I saw two distillers in Frederick that I definitely wanted to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, I spoke to Braden yeah, Bumpers yeah. over at uh, McClintock Great last guy. week. And I wanted to see what's going on at 10th Ward, just because the stuff on your website is so interesting. Thank you. So, so let me stop talking and let me start <laughs> at talking to you. Um, tell us a little bit about how you first came into distilling. What, what, what's your journey? Because I think you're from Kansas. Is that yes, right? yes, that is true. Um, yeah, so I feel like my story is a lot like um, a lot of other distiller stories in as much as where you can make wine at home, you can make beer at home. It is illegal to distill at home in the United States of America. And so, you know, you have a lot of these microbreweries and these small vineyards opening up when they're actually you know, people who have experience making this at home. Uh, there's not a real path like that in terms of distilling. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, another lifetime ago, I was actually an investigative reporter. Oh, wow. Um, I got my bachelor's degree uh, in journalism, bachelor of science in journalism from University of Kansas, oh. Rock Chalk Jayhawk. Yeah, 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 okay. <laughs> um, and ended up covering mostly government, mm -hmm. um, crime, cops, things like that. Uh, then 2008 hit where pretty much 
all of the newspapers either started laying off people or just pulling way, way back. Yeah. yeah. And, and Craigslist came out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Craigslist. And, it killed classified. Uh, and yeah. newspapers completely made a huge mistake when they started offering everything for free and then tried to put it behind a paywall. Of yeah, yeah. Just And investigative reporting, unfortunately, you tend to piss off advertisers. And so <laughs> newspapers weren't super keen to have that. Right, so I right. um, actually had the opportunity to go back and take over the daily newspaper of my hometown, which is Dodge City, Kansas. Oh, wow. Uh, went there, uh, moved back to home, uh, had just recently gotten married, was doing, I thought, a really good job, but was also working, you know, from about seven in the morning to about three in the morning, seven days a week. I mean, just pretty much lived at the paper. Uh, so I did what a lot of journalists do. I left journalism and got into public relations and marketing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a national agricultural company that was in my hometown. I took over as their director of communications, and I did that for seven and a half years. Uh, during that, though, my wife and I are big foodies. We've always been really into craft cocktails. And of course, this is right around the time of the cocktail renaissance, especially as it's starting to reach beyond the metropolitan areas. Uh -huh. So my wife and I, uh, there's a local live theater. We actually took over their bar program and started focusing it on craft spirits, um, higher quality cocktails, trying to create this elevated style of cocktail drinking in this small Midwestern town. Okay. Uh, did that for a couple of years. While I was doing that, I was still doing freelance writing, specifically talking about spirits, cocktails, and then that business just kind of grew and grew and grew. And then there was a distillery that was getting ready to open in my hometown. And I was familiar with the owners. It was three farmers who had gotten together to start this distillery. Uh, and they had reached out and they're like, hey, we know you know spirits. We know you know like marketing and journalism. Right. Do you mind coming on as like a consultant? Like you come in and go, yeah, this is good. Yeah, this is crap. We adjust from there. But I was so unsatisfied <laughs> at my job. Just, yeah. you know, it, it paid it paid well. Um, it was a good company, but just not a whole lot of job satisfaction on my end. And so I reached out to the owners and said, hey, I have a proposition. How about instead of being a consultant, you bring me on as your director of marketing and as your assistant distiller? And they said, sure. Yeah. So yeah. I, I stepped away from that job and eventually just kind of took over the majority of the distillation uh, helped the distillery get off the ground, win a bunch of awards. And that is when I kind of came to know of 10th Ward. Uh, the, Let me ask you a question yeah, real quick yeah, about yeah. The, the farmers that were mm -hmm. wanting to get into this business. Did any of them have uh, experience distilling? Nope. Um, the, uh, it was a father and a son and then a business partner. And the, the son always said, you know, he was really focused on like vertical integration okay. of food. Like, Instead of just growing the grain, selling it to the elevator, then that goes and becomes a commodity elsewhere. He wanted to find a way to get more use out of it internally. And he said the way he looked at it, you could either start a cattle feeding operation uh -huh. or you could start distilling. And distilling is a lot more fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so they were kind of in the same position that I was. And that's what was nice is that gave me the freedom to learn with them. And okay. Okay. Go to other distilleries and see how they did things. Oh, the reason I smiled when he brought up farmers. My mother's side of the family is from Bedford, Virginia. Oh, okay. Bedford yeah. County, Virginia, mm -hmm. which is notorious for their moonshine. <laughs> it always starts with farmers. Oh, yeah. It always starts with farmers, but usually they know how, but they, you know, at least they experiment until something blows up. Right. Um, <laughs> on how to distill. So, anyway, go back to you. But yeah, so that was, um, so yeah, we met a bunch of distillers, toured around, um, and then a lot of it was self taught. Mm -hmm. uh, and the former head distiller here at 10th Ward um, was a good friend of mine. So the distilling industry is very insular. Yes. You know, there's, there's not a lot of us. And so he actually got poached by a distillery in Ireland. Nice. Yeah. And so he called me up one day and he was just like, hey, because I don't know if you're thinking of leaving where you're at. I don't know if you're interested in coming out here. He goes, but I've got this opportunity. And I immediately thought of you. It's like, I figured, you know, like what 10th Ward is doing how they're developing, uh, Monica Pierce, our founder, mm -hmm. uh, kind of the aesthetic that she's taken. He's like, I think that would fit really well. My wife and I, uh, our son had graduated high school. He was off at college. So we're like, there's nothing really keeping us. Mm -hmm. And so we came out and visited and fell in love with Frederick. Um, both of my brothers have lived on the East Coast before. So like we were familiar with the area. And so, yeah, just I absolutely fell in love with what Monica and the 10th Ward team was doing here and taking that focus of 
traditional distillation techniques, but then turning them on their head a little bit. And yeah, so that's kind of the super quick cliff's notes of how yeah. I went from a journalist to a distiller. Now, did Ted Ford <laughs> always do that? Because I was intrigued by the your predecessor. Yes. That he went to, you know, when I'm thinking Ireland, I always think Irish whiskey. Right. And, and I which know is what you, he went to do. Was, so you said he was poached. Mm -hmm. So was it because of the whiskey? Uh, obviously, that was being created here. So before he was here, he was actually at Rogue okay. out in Portland. Yeah. So he had a lot of whiskey experience. Uh -huh. uh, and so some personal th things that happened in his personal life ended up with him coming from the West Coast out to the East Coast. And so I think my understanding is some of that carryover from developing the whiskey program at Rogue is okay. what helped get him there because it's really been in the past 16 months that we've started to really, really focus on our aged spirits and our whiskey program here uh -huh. at Tenth Ward. I was looking at some of your products on your website, at least the year-round releases. Mm -hmm. I think you have four. Yes. And uh, when I was... I'm not much of a liquor drinker. I was when I was younger, and I drank gin. Right. And I noticed the first one on your list was this Geneva. Yes, Jennifer, Geneva, Hanover. Yeah. It's it has about eight different ways it can be pronounced. <laughs> but is, is that like that's a Dutch style gin? Yes. Now, what makes gin a Dutch style gin as opposed to uh, an American style or an English gin? Yeah. So um, this is something I'm really proud of. Uh -huh. The Jennifer is the first product I created wholly by myself nice. here at 10th Ward. And I've always been fascinated by it. So Jennifer is kind of considered the grandfather of what we consider modern gin. Um, if we're thinking in terms of most people think gin, they think London dry, right. very juniper forward, very piney, right. sometimes very citrusy. Uh, Jennifer actually started out as the distillation of what they called malt wines, which essentially is malted grain fermented, distilled out, and then infused with botanicals. Okay. So this came about, I want to say, early 13th century is the first real mention of Jennifer. And Jennifer is, I believe, Dutch for juniper. Uh -huh. So that makes sense. Okay. But then during the Hundred Years' War, um, when the British were fighting, they noticed that a lot of their, um, their co-soldiers who were Dutch would take a shot of this liquor before they would charge into battle. They started calling it Dutch curd. Oh, wow. So they said, we need to get some of that stuff, yes. right? <laughs> so <laughs> the soldiers, when they returned back to the UK, had developed a taste for this juniper-flavored whiskey, essentially. And so as distilling technology improved, uh -huh. they started distilling more neutral spirits, infusing it with the juniper and the botanicals. And so London Dry evolved from juniper. It became more juniper-forward. Yes. And the, you have less of an impact of the base spirit as well. Uh -huh. um, one of the things that makes Jennifer inspired, so we have to call it Jennifer inspired because Jennifer can only technically come from the EU, specifically the Netherlands, um, a couple of places like in champagne. France. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. champagne, it's tequila. Yeah. Uh, so basically we distill it in a traditional Dutch style mm. where it's basically, we always tell people if you're not huge into gin, it's a great introduction. Uh, you can taste the grain in it. It's very malty. It's very soft. Um, it's kind of the whiskey drinker's gin. Oh. Wow. Well, I'll have to try some of that. <laughs> yes. I, yeah, I saw that, uh, you know, I, I tried another distiller up here last week who also has a gin mm -hmm. that is, um, the juniper isn't as heavy in that as well. That's very interesting. That was, I'll be really interested in that. You yeah. poured something here yes. for yes. us. Uh, what is this? So what I just poured for us is what we call our stouted rye. Okay. So as I had mentioned, one of the big aesthetics here at 10th Ward is, I always say people way more intelligent than me came before us, figured out how to do this distilling thing. But rather than just recreating something that somebody else has done, we like to take that knowledge, dig down deep, and then find ways that we can create a unique twist on it. Uh, as obviously this is audio, so people can't see, but we yeah. are sitting under a big painted sign on the wall that says Ward Off Ordinary. That is kind of our motto, our raison d'etre, if yeah. you would. Mm -hmm. And so this is a traditional Maryland style rye. Mm -hmm. um, most people, when they think of rye, think of like a Midwest rye, mm -hmm. which is super, super high rye. So very peppery very hot. Maryland rye is a little bit softer. Um, if you look at the history 
Some people argue it's because there was more corn in it. Some people argue because it was more barley. With us, we've taken the barley train. Okay. So ours is 70% rye, 30% malted barley. We do a double pot distillation on it. We age it in brand new barrels to you know hit all of our rules to call it a rye whiskey. But then we actually finish it for a month in uh, beer barrels. Oh. Uh, specifically, we source stout barrels and porter barrels. Okay. And we take that aged whiskey, put it in there, finish it off, pull it out, proof it down, it goes into the bottle. So what that does is that kind of really accentuates a lot of the heavier, maltier, softer notes mm -hmm. and subdues some of that spice from that rye. Wow. Did a podcast a couple of years ago with, uh, and I mentioned this uh, the other week, with uh, Kevin Addix. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, of course. Of uh, Grow and Fortify. Mm -hmm. And he was the person who first informed me of Maryland's rich tradition in rye, which I knew nothing about. Yeah, it's it's super, super interesting. In fact, I just finished reading a book about the Whiskey Rebellion that took place in Pennsylvania. And it's easy to forget, you know, we tend to think of bourbon as the American whiskey, but rye predates that. Uh -huh. I mean, that was the preponderance of whiskey being made in the colonies, specifically Maryland and Pennsylvania, was rye. Yeah. And so the Pennsylvania rye is that higher rye content, spicier, and then the Maryland offered that more soft, uh, a little bit more velvety note to it. Yeah. Because I always thought of it as, you know, something that was like a, a drink from the past. Right. You know, like, you know, you watch Westerns and they're drinking rye, you mm -hmm. know, something like that. So that's really was interesting. I'm glad I'm glad that uh, people in Maryland are bringing it back. That's the you goal. Know? And it's it's my hope that like, and you're seeing this kind of increase of people's interest in rye and mm -hmm. kind of digging into the history of it. So yeah, I, to me, I hope, I, I feel like rye's cut pushing up on bourbon. Okay. This Is this the... Caraway rye that's on your website? So this is a little bit different. Okay. Um, it's the same grain base, but right. with our caraway rye, it's unaged. And so when we're mashing in, we actually toss in about 10 pounds of caraway seed. Uh oh, okay. And so that, I wondered why what's called that. Yes. Okay. So we actually put caraway into the mash, and that stays in through the fermentation, yeah. through the distillation. And it produces a spirit that is much more similar to like an aquavit. I love our caraway rye because it is one of our most divisive. <laughs> it is people either love it or they hate it. There is no in between. And what is what is the note or the flavor that they don't that when they object to it? Um, like? I think it's the caraway. Uh, it has to me. It's almost like drinking uh, pumpernickel rye, like pumpernickel uh, bread. And right. so it's every time I smell it or drink it, I want a Reuben, just yeah. like a nice big sandwich. Well, pumper, pumpernickel is divisive too. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so I think that's it creates such a distinctive flavor. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's cilantro. Yeah, you love it or you hate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is the same thing, just minus that caraway. Caraway okay. does not go into okay because I did yeah I didn't taste that in there sourcing I'm, I'm gonna take a little mm. diversion here mm -hmm. for a minute because I I was I did take note that that at least the caraway rye on the website they talked about getting the rye from West Virginia mm -hmm. is that obviously that's an intentional thing what what is it about the West Virginia rye that so we specifically ended up sourcing all of our grain from a farm in West Virginia because. We happened to know the farmer. Okay. Um, before the distillery had opened, uh, there was this farmer out in West Virginia, only about 30 miles from us here in Frederick. And he had been growing his own rye, his own barley, his own corn, and then malting that in-house and then selling it to local brewers, um, whether that was to like hobbyists or whatever it might be. And so uh, Monica happened to know him. We got set up with him. And one of our big focuses, because Monica has a degree in environmental sciences. And that is, would be the owner. Monica. Yes, yes, okay. Monica is our owner. Um, we wanted to really focus on sourcing as close as we could uh -huh. and, again, reducing that footprint. And the fact that we had a farmer 30 miles away who not only grew all of the grain, but also malted it right there himself. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's why we decided on that one is... We are what we call a single source distillery, mm -hmm. which means all of our grain comes from that farm. And that has helped us really develop that relationship with the farmer, uh, develop the relationship with his maltstress. Ariel uh, is the maltster and one of the only woman maltsters in the U.S. as well. Wow. So, um, at first time I've ever heard maltstress. Yes. <laughs> I don't think that's a real <laughs> word. I think we just like to call her the maltstress. <laughs> no, I like it. I like it. I like it. She should put it on the card. 
I like it. Okay, so we've gone through, those are two. We mm -hmm. talked about the rye and the gin. Smoked corn whiskey? Yes. Okay, now does this farmer smoke the corn for he you? He does. Okay. So this is a uh, specific smoke, it's a specific wood blend that he uses for his barbecue. Mm -hmm. um, he, grows the, he grows the corn, we get it ground up till it's about the consistency of cornmeal. And then he basically just has a big smoking box okay. that he puts his proprietary wood underneath it, smokes it, and it takes about a day to slowly smoke the corn itself. That then gets mashed in, fermented, distilled, and we have two products that are a base of that smoked corn. One of them is smoked corn whiskey, which is the unaged, you know, quote unquote, moonshine that you would call it. And the other is our smoked bourbon, which is the same mash bill, but goes into barrels and ages. Okay, because typical corn whiskey, mm -hmm. moonshine, is clear. Right. The smoked corn, does that bring give it the amber color? Or? So this is the smoked bourbon, so right. this has that color because it's actually touched oak. Okay. Our actual smoked corn, pretty much any distillate coming off the still is gonna be clear. Right. Um, color doesn't really survive the distillation mm -hmm. process. So, so yeah, these guys are pretty much identical other than because we know this guy is going to go into a bottle having never touched oak, we're actually very careful about how we make our cuts. Mm. This is distilled more akin to what you would anticipate a vodka or a gin because things that would be considered flaws, we kind of want some of those for our whiskeys mm -hmm. because as those sit on the oak, you have uh, oxidation happening, you have filtration, what is a flaw then transforms into something that we want in an aged spirit. We don't want it in the clear spirit. Okay. So I'd be happy to pour you a little bit of this oh, guy okay. too. Okay. Now do does, and I, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. <laughs> um, you know, in wine, aging can st still happens in the bottle, right. while it's in the bottle. What about spirits? Not really. I don't um, think so. Spirits, I call spirits in a bottle are essentially a, a dead right. liquid. Um, whereas with beer and wine, you still have a lot of the, um, whether it's the grape or the grain in it, you still have some yeast, so you're going to have conditioning in the bottle. With spirits, basically once it goes into a bottle, that's it. That's mm -hmm. how it is. Um, I've had people in the past that have been like, hey, I bought this 10-year-old scotch 30 years ago. And I've been sitting on it. And now I'm going to drink this 40 year old scotch. That's why I brought it up. Yeah. And I'm like, it's going to taste like a 10 year old <laughs> scotch, man. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, you know what? This smells like it should come out of a, a, a ball uh, jar, a mason jar. Oh, right. Right. <laughs> very, really very smoky, mm -hmm. very oily. It's almost akin to like a mezcal. Yeah. Um, it has a little more of that heavier note. Yeah. What I love about it is you get that smoke right up front. Yeah, you do. And then as it sits, you get that sweetness off of the corn. Yeah. Yeah, that is nice. Thank That's you. Nice. So last but not least, <laughs> and you know, this is I really what jumps out at me and probably anyone else who, who looks at your selection, the absinthe. Yes. Now, I have an ex-wife who is Lithuanian. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, I spent a lot of time in Lithuania, in, in Vilnius, which is the capital. And there were there are absinthe bars mm -hmm. there. And I was, you know, they always told, told me, oh, this is the real absinthe. This mm -hmm. is what they sell in America, you know. Tell me about absinthe, you know. Yes. Because I, I think that there is a, a lot of mythology out there about it, misinformation, and maybe some of it is true. So tell me about absinthe. Oh, yeah. No, uh, absinthe is one of my favorite things that we make. Um, we're Maryland's first and only absinthe. Um, we actually just got a uh, gold at the New York International Spirits. Nice. Uh, we've been named one of the top five domestic absinthe in the country. So uh, what I always tell people is, you know, pretty much everything you know about absinthe is wrong. <laughs> Other than typically it is green and it tastes like liquor. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the absinthe that we make, we make it in a traditional French style, but it is a true absinthe. To make absinthe absinthe, it has to have what we call the holy trinity. The holy trinity is uh, fennel, green anise, and wormwood, right. specifically grand wormwood. Uh, therein lies where a lot of the mythology of absinthe was created. Uh, Grand Wormwood produces a chemical called thujone. Okay. For a long time, people thought thujone was psychotropic. They yeah. thought if you imbibe thujone, you would trip. Uh, really what that all comes back down to is a really terrible smear campaign <laughs> in the 1700s. Yeah. Um, if you, and 
having done a wine podcast, I'm sure you've heard about things like this, but mm -hmm. you know, when you had uh, that virus, or not the virus, the fungus that hit the uh, French uh, grapevines. Yeah, yeah. And, and the Burgundy. Yeah. yeah, and all of the production just absolutely tanks. Around the same time, you see the distillation start of absinthe. And because of its accessibility, because of its affordability, it started becoming more and more popular within France. Mm -hmm. Specifically, because it was enjoyed so much by the Bohemians, you had the French establishment, specifically the wine growers, figure out, okay, this is eating into our profit. How do we stop people drinking this? So they started claiming, oh, well, people are going insane yeah. because they're drinking it. They're... Yeah. As I always tell people, so people like, say, Van Gogh or any of these other people that may have, you know, tripped if they had it, a lot of them were also doing opium. Right. That's, all, that's, <laughs> so, that's what I was going to bring up. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it's and kind of what they rallied around is there was a, uh, a French citizen who ended up after he drank a glass of absinthe, killed his wife, killed his kids and then tried to kill himself. What they failed to mention, though, is before that glass of absinthe, he had something around 10 bottles of wine, four pints of beer over like a two day period. Yeah. yeah. And then went, had this glass. Yeah. But of course, they conveniently forgot. Yeah. Bit. Yeah. So you get into the uh, 1900s and France bans uh, absinthe. Of course, we hit prohibition in the US. Mm -hmm. um, the UK and a handful of countries still allowed it. 2007, government finally said, oh, okay, there's actually no truth to this Thujon myth. As I always tell people, yeah, it's mildly carcinogenic. If you were to drink it up, drink enough absinthe to try and get any sort of reaction from the Thujon, you'd die of alcohol poisoning yeah, first. Yeah. So, yeah, I went to this uh, event at Morton's where there's the absinthe sales rep came in mm -hmm. and they went through the whole sugar cube thing mm -hmm. and all of that. I didn't understand. I didn't see the, well, you know, it seemed like a lot of production for a very little payoff. I didn't get oh, it. It is. It is. Um, I feel like, so even before I was a journalism major, I was a theater major. Okay. So I have a soft spot for, let's oh, make yeah. a big oh, production. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and to me, the thing about absinthe and like a traditional absinthe service yeah. is it's, kind of testing your patience and it is kind of this little bit of meditation. Mm -hmm. So absinthe goes into a bottle at an incredibly high proof. Uh, for example, our absinthe goes in at 70% ABV. Wow. It's like 140 proof. The reason that we do that is to maintain that crystal clear look. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at a bottle of absinthe, it's going to be nice and clear. Uh, but as you add water to it, you will see what's called Lelouch. Okay. And basically what that is doing is one, if you've ever heard that whiskey is better with a couple of drops of water, uh -huh. same thing goes with absinthe. You have a lot of volatile oils that are held in suspension. They're very soluble with ethanol. Uh, they are not super water soluble though. So what'll happen is as you slowly add that water into the absinthe, basically those heavier volatile oils get pulled out of suspension. You see it become cloudy yeah. and you get a lot more um, kind of nuance off of yeah, there. Yeah. So It's quite dramatic. Yes, it is. And as for the sugar, I prefer my absence without sugar. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, because I know you have a background in being a cocktail mm -hmm. ologist. <laughs> um, how does it serve normally? Uh, just you know, straight with the sugar or without sugar or, or what? So my recommendation um, is an ounce of absinthe to three ounces ice cold water. Okay. That's how I like it. Um, the reason you do the drip, say like with an absinthe fountain, is that slower drip helps open those up a little bit slower. Awesome. Um, if you've ever heard the term bruising, that can occasionally happen if you put water too fast. There's also a term called sopification, which is basically, it starts to taste like soap. Oh. So if you add water too fast to some spirits, you get this really unpleasant note to it. So for me, I like a one to three ratio, absinthe to ice water. Um, Again, yeah, if you like your stuff a little bit sweeter, you can do certainly do the uh, sugar cube uh -huh. to add a little bit of sweetness. But a well-made absinthe is going to have some natural sweetness that's already present in it. Uh, it's interesting to note, like by law or by you know the guidelines of how to produce absinthe, you also can't add sweetness to it. Yeah. So like the absinthe in the bottle has no sugar in it already. So it just has kind of a natural sweet taste. Well, obviously, you're producing a quality one because you won this award. We, th we like to think so. <laughs> How is the demand for it? Um, 
you know, is do people come in knowing that you are producing this and they come specifically for it? We do have a handful of people. What encourages me is we're seeing more people who are willing to try it. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people are attracted to the novelty of it. Sure. Because of course, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you hear these stories about yeah. absinthe and oh my God, absinthe. Yeah. Um, but no, we have people that will come in specifically to try our absinthe. They will pick up multiple bottles. Mm -hmm. um, we're obviously very popular with bartenders in the area because it's a high quality domestically produced absinthe. And again, we talk about this focus on classic cocktails. Of course, a lot of the old school cocktails had absinthe in it. So, you, so there are some uh, restaurants and bars mm -hmm. in the area that carry your products. Yes. Um, do most of them carry absinthe if they're, if they're getting their whiskey from you? Do you know? I know you're um, not on the sales side. But yeah, I, you know, I do know it's our number two seller oh, okay. just behind the Jennifer. The Jennifer Inspired Gin is our number one. We had talked a little bit about the caraway rye and mm -hmm. the unaged uh, smoked corn whiskey. Those will eventually fade out and will be replaced by their aged counterparts. Mm. Um, but I do know that we have a handful of accounts that not only have they picked up our absinthe, have bought absinthe fountains and oh. like made part of the appeal to come there is, oh, if you come in, you're going to get a full traditional absinthe service. Well, it's, it is quite dramatic. I mean, it's fun to do. It's fun to do, but I was a little disappointed. Oh, yeah, yeah. When, you know, because I bought into the mythology, so I wanted, you know, I thought I'd see little fairies and everything. Of course, it, of course. It didn't happen. <laughs> okay, so let's ward off the ordinary and mm -hmm. talk about your one-offs, because I know that you guys do a lot of small batch. Mm -hmm. I think that's your, as you say, raison d'entre, that's, mm -hmm. that's your thing. Tell me about that. So we have, a, we have two different styles of one-offs that we do. Uh, one of them is what we call our club releases. So okay. we have a bottle club that people can sign up for free, but basically they agree that they're going to purchase uh, X number of bottles per quarter. Mm -hmm. And so once a quarter, we do a special release that only goes to club members, is never available to the public. And then at our cocktail lab, which is our space over uh, further downtown here in okay. Frederick, uh, they also then get a unique cocktail that you can only get if you're a club member. Oh, okay. And for that, the kind of the focus that we've really tried to do, especially over the past year, has been creating things that people maybe haven't had before. Uh, so, for example, one of our releases last year is what we called our Paw Paw Morrow. I was going to bring that yes. up. Yes. <laughs> so that's one of my favorite ones. So, you know, in a Morrow, it right. is traditionally an Italian bitter liqueur. We also like to focus on local. Pawpaws are what people call, you know, North America's only native tropical fruit. Uh, so we knew we wanted to utilize the pawpaw in something. Uh, pawpaws have this very unique, it's almost like a mix between pineapple and mango and banana flavor. Very tropical, very, just really, really beautiful. And so we wanted to then make that a little bit bitter, make that a little bit stranger. So we created an Amaro with the pawpaw as a base. Um, our most recent club release that we uh, released in third or second quarter, yeah, third quarter, sorry, uh, was a slow gin. Mm -hmm. uh, we created a brand new London dry gin. We didn't just reuse our Jennifer base, brand new gin, slow berries, and like a traditional British style slow gin, not that syrupy crap that it's, you know, on the bottom <laughs> shelf right, that right. people think of when they think of slow gin. That's what I think of. Yeah. yeah. And then our quarter four release that's coming out, which I've actually got a little bit for you to try as well, is a spiced whiskey. So we took our rye whiskey, aged it, and then infused it with pear, vanilla, oh, wow. uh, spice bush, and created something that is this very unique, very fall, very winter. It's like wrapping yourself in a coat. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> now, I um, heard you, you were on a, another podcast talking about the pawpaw mm -hmm. and also that you did a crab apple mm -hmm. um, concoction. I don't know. What was it a whiskey? Was it a crab Well, apple? so the crab apple was actually in the pawpaw morrow as well. Okay. So we harvested some local crab apples because we really right. wanted that really deep, deep astringency. Okay. And so that got tossed in along with the pawpaws to kind of offset that sweeter tropical note. Yeah. What I wanted to ask you about was, again, sourcing. Because yes. crab apples, being a Marylander as I am, I know you can get them <laughs> locally. Mm -hmm. But stuff like pawpaws mm -hmm. and the pears that are it's in this spiced whiskey, how do you decide where you're going to get those? So pawpaws um, are native to Maryland, but they are a nightmare to process. Yeah. Um, there's actually, I believe, three pawpaw orchards 
I've never America. seen one. Or I may have seen one and not known I was looking yeah. at a pawpaw. Well, but. and the pawpaw, the pawpaw season is maybe like three weeks. Oh, I mean, wow. it is a super, super, basically once it falls off of the tree, you can't do anything with it. It immediately starts to rot and break down. <laughs> wow. But we found a farm in Ohio okay. called Integration Acres that specializes in pawpaws. And we ended up going with them because they did all the processing for us. Because uh, we needed, you know, several hundred pounds of pawpaws, uh, the actual pawpaw flesh. Right. So they did all of that for us, shipped it to us, and then we used it from there. Like immediately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was like a, okay, it's done, cool. They overnighted it, and it immediately went in. <laughs> I, I had no idea they were native to Maryland. Yeah. I mean, the only time I've heard of a pawpaw mm-hmm. was from Baloo the Bear in Jungle Book. And Disney's Jungle Book and Bare Necessities and yes. that song. Which is interesting because, the and this is like me being super nerdy, the right. Papa in Bare Necessities doesn't refer to a true Papa. Papa <laughs> is, I believe, another term for mango. If, oh. if I'm correct. They see something to go with prickly pear. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. But yeah, so like the, the Papa is so cool because if you look at its native region, it goes from Pennsylvania down the mid-Atlantic across into the Midwest. Yeah. And so like even places like Kansas and Nebraska have pawpaws natively. So maybe we should blame, maybe Walt Disney or the Disney Corporation. <laughs> I, I know he didn't write the song. Maybe he's uh, the blame for people thinking of pawpaws as a tropical fruit. Oh, there you go. And it, but isn't <laughs> it, it just has such a unique tropical flavor to yeah, That's the yeah. bizarre thing. Yeah, was, wow. It must have been, I, I would have loved to taste that. So like, let me just talk, ask you about Amaro or Amari. Mm-hmm. So how is that typically served? How would you use your uh, Papa Amaro? What would be a great way to use it? So traditionally, um, Amaro or Amari were meant to be served as either an aperitivo, served before you eat dinner, or as a digestif right. after dinner to help with your digestion. Interestingly enough, there is actually some science behind that. Bitter is typically poison. And so when humans imbibe bitter, it does actually kick off digestion because okay. your body goes... Get it out. Get uh-huh. it out as quickly uh-huh. as possible. Um, so truthfully, a a well-made Amari can be enjoyed by itself um, in a glass, neat, maybe with a little bit of ice. Most people, however, aren't huge fans of bitter. Uh, so it is really used mostly as a cocktail mixer. Um, you're like one Campari. Of, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Say so Campari is an Amaro. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, so it can be used in a cocktail. It can be used in a spritzer. Or it can be used to stand alone as its own in its own cocktail. So this uh, spiced whiskey, yes. this is the autumn release for mm-hmm. your club? Yes, this is the October release. Okay. So this says, yeah, of course, I got all this off your website. <laughs> Original apple brandy melded with ginger, plum, black tea, turmeric, allspice, ch- ch- chichona bark? Cinchona. Cinchona bark. Now, so that is our autumn liqueur. So ah. this comes out, we have four seasonal liqueurs. So that's what I'm describing. Yes. Just here. Okay. So we have four seasonal liqueurs. Uh, each one, much like the club releases, comes out once a quarter. But this is available to the general public. Yes, this is available. Um, this will actually be available from this upcoming weekend. Okay. So I don't know when this is launching, so it's probably past. It's, it'll be past, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, but this It'll will be, be autumn, autumn, though, so just come to 10th Ward to get yes, this. Yes, perfect, perfect. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is an apple brandy base. Um, that's actually what I'm distilling right now oh, as we wow. talk. Okay. That's what's coming off of the still. Um, again, focusing on local, we have McCutcheon's Apple Products here in Frederick. Yeah. Basically, they sell us big totes of unpasteurized, uh, unfiltered apple cider. We ferment it with our own unique yeast strains, becomes a hard cider, and then we distill that hard cider out into what we call an apple O to V which is essentially an unaged apple brandy. Okay. We then take that and we take the botanicals and we infuse them directly in. Uh, One of the things that we're very, very proud about is we do not do any sort of artificial flavoring, any sort of artificial coloration. So what you see in the bottle, that kind of lovely like autumn leaf orange. It is. That comes from the botanicals directly sitting in the alcohol itself. Cinchona bark. Yes. Where is that from? Oh, man. So cinchona bark, um, I cannot tell you the source of it. I okay. will cop to ignorance, but I will tell you if you've ever is seen tonic it? water and it has quinine, yeah. that's cinchona bark. Cinchona bark, when it soaks, releases quinine. 
Okay, so, but it's North America. I mean, cinchona is the name of the tree, I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah, okay, yes. so I've never heard of a cinchona tree. So it wow. is, uh, yeah, it's its own unique little, uh, but it adds a nice little bit of bitterness to it. Wow, that's delicious. Thank you very much. This is my favorite of our four liqueurs. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> we do this, a springtime, summertime, autumn, and winter. Yeah, now this is um, because it's not too sweet, but it has a sweet back to it. I guess that's the honey that I'm tasting. Yes. On the end. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so we, um, it's a little bit higher proof too. Uh, it's 65 proof, which is 32 and a half percent ABV. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a little bit, a little bit warmer. You're going to have more of that ethanol bite to it. But yes, all, all of our liqueurs are sweetened with local honey. And yeah, it just adds that nice little bit of body to it. Wow. But yeah, this comes out next weekend. Oh wait, no, this weekend. It comes out this weekend. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So what? Tell me, what am I not asking you about Tenth Ward Distilling Company or about you, Mark? What 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 should people know, really? Um, well, you know, one of the things that we're really really proud of, uh, we are one of North America's only one hundred percent woman owned distilleries. Uh, we're also majority woman run. There's in in our entire staff, there's two full time guys mm -hmm. and two part time guys. The rest are all women. Um, our assistant distiller is a woman who's absolutely brilliant. And she came from the brewing side okay. into the distilling side and this kind of learning things. Um, but really what we like to focus on is um, we call ourselves small but mighty. Mm -hmm. um, as I'm sure as you start to learn more about distilling, the space we're sitting in is pretty small. Right, it <laughs> we're, is. We've got about 1,800 square feet. But in that 1,800 square feet, we now distribute across all of Maryland. We're down into the district throughout there. We've had we've been approached by other states to expand our distribution, but we're focused on basically creating really high quality spirits cool. by hand. Um, and I think you're going to see more of that in the industries as well. Like distilling is a little bit different than say brewing, where yeah, okay, we have a tap room and that's it. Like for a long time, the assumption was if you're a distillery. Your goal is to get in all 50 states, get international. We want to create something that is very much part and parcel of this time and this place. Yeah. That if you taste something from 10th Ward, you go, that's 10th Ward. It's Maryland influenced. It's Maryland inspired. Yeah. So that's really, to, to, to go along with that, that is really what this podcast is all about. Mm -hmm. I wanted to promote this area, the Mid-Atlantic. And what we're doing here. Once I started drinking more wine mm -hmm. and, you know, like most people, like most Americans, I would say, who uh, don't have really deep pockets, uh, most of my wine I was drinking was from California. Mm -hmm. And that's how my palate developed. And then when I learned more about what was going on here and more about Bordeaux wine and that type of thing, I learned what, what we were doing right here in Maryland and Virginia. And I wanted people, I got to, I started getting frustrated with friends of mine who I would tell about Maryland wine and, or Virginia wine. And they would say, oh, I tried it. It was terrible. <laughs> and, and I was like, well, you were, were you looking for like a California wine when mm -hmm. you were drinking it? And I'm ready for people to start focusing on coming here to get stuff. Like you always hear about people taking these trips to Napa. Right. You know, and, and, and I'm or taking trips to Ireland. You know, right. but I want them to come here. So I, I really like hearing you say that because I am all for being not uh, a franchise, mm -hmm. but come to Maryland and get this stuff. Yeah, you know? exactly. And one of the things that attracted my wife and I to Frederick in particular and Maryland as a whole is we came from Kansas mm -hmm. and, you know, Kansas had a really good brewing scene. The, the wine scene was definitely on the up and up, but zero distilling. Yeah. Um, the distillery that I was at was the third in the state. Wow. <laughs> and there are six distilleries just in Frederick. Yeah. Um, and just seeing the quality that was coming out of the brewing and the distilling and the venting in Maryland just drew us here. And I feel like it's one of the good things I talk about the cocktail renaissance. We're kind of in a craft distilling renaissance now as well. Um, I mean, God, five years ago, I think there was 200 registered micro distilleries in the U.S. 
as of last month, it's up to 2,000. Yeah. So you're seeing this massive explosion of distilleries, and that is giving that chance for the distilleries to create their own style. And I think you also run into that same issue in distilling. People have in their mind, like, this is, this is how I should interpret this drink. Yeah. And if you create something entirely new, <laughs> uh, you, you can occasionally run into, well, this doesn't taste like Jack Daniels or right. this doesn't taste like Jim Beam. And you, you, you kind of ask, like, what's one thing we want people to take away from 10th Ward is we like to do things a little bit strangely, a little bit weird, but not weird for weirdness sake. Yeah. We still want to create that high quality spirit. And one thing that we're proud of is 100% of our product is made right here uh -huh. in this space. Uh -huh. We don't source anything. Um, we source neutral spirits. That's the only thing we source. And that is used as the base for our absinthe. And that is only because we just don't have the capability to distill right. up to 95% ABV. Yeah. Right. <laughs> One of the things I like about, it has attracted me to Frederick, as well as Richmond. That's why I wanted to expand my, my uh, podcast. It's the collaboration that I see between producers there. Now, mm -hmm. I, I saw, I was looking at your retired liquors, mm -hmm. and one that caught my eye was the one you did with Attaboy Beer, uh -huh. which really sounded good because I'd never heard of Blood Orange Cider yes. before in my life. So I, I have to go get some of that <laughs> if they still make it. But I'm sorry that I missed out on that uh, yeah. What was it called? Attaboy? Uh, Attabrandy. Attabrandy, yeah. Yes, yeah. So um, that kind of ties back in. You had asked about like our one-offs. Yeah. I had mentioned our club releases. The other side of that is we have what we call our limited releases. Uh -huh. And those are ones that are just one-offs. And it's one of the things and one of the reasons I'm so glad I left public relations and marketing. Because <laughs> as you know, it's such a cutthroat. Yeah. It's not a very supportive industry yeah. like it's always how do i get ahead and in craft distilling and craft beer and wine it is very supportive and so what we do is we look for hey basically like with the add brandy they had made a blood orange cider they just weren't super happy with it turned out they called us and we're like yeah well 100 take it off of your hands oh so they didn't sell it no no oh. they well i think they did it like sounds a, good yeah <laughs> I thought it was delicious yeah. when they dropped yeah. it off, but yeah. then we distilled that cider out yeah. into this blood orange brandy. And uh, there's another brewery here in town called Old Mother, mm -hmm. um, and they had gotten delivered the incorrect malt, but they went ahead, fermented it, decided they didn't like the beer. We took the beer from them, distilled it, aged it in a barrel, and released it. And so the amount of collaboration that happens is really humbling. It is okay. definitely a not in competition with each other, but in cooperation with each other vibe within Frederick. I doubt you uh, have this many barrels and I'm about to ask you this question about, but I'm gonna ask it anyway, because I do a lot of work with winemakers. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's coming around now is to age this red wine in bourbon barrels. Right. Have you had anyone talk to you about doing that? We have actually. Um, that is another thing that we like to do is um, we have a barrel exchange with several of the breweries and wineries within yeah. the region. Yeah. Um, specifically, a winery down in D.C. took uh, our a couple of our rye barrels. Uh -huh. uh, a winery here in Frederick County took two of our apple brandy barrels and are doing some finishing of a white wine in it. And they told me what it was, and I can't remember. Was it Black Ankle? It might, no, it wasn't Black Ankle. I feel so bad, because they actually haven't even like fully opened yet. Like, okay. Oh, okay. Super, right. super small. Okay. Um, but yeah, is as we have stepped up our aged whiskey production, mm -hmm. that means because for it to be bourbon, for it to be rye, we always have to use brand new barrels. That means we need to figure out what to do with those used barrels. We will give it to a brewery, give it to a winery, let them do some finishing in it, and then we'll take it back and we'll finish a brand new product of ours in it. And just we're always looking at new ways we can kind of push that envelope and find a way to create something wholly unique. Let me ask you about those barrels. Like mm -hmm. the barrel you would use your put your smoked bourbon in. Yes. If you use that same barrel for another batch, would it change the character of that? Bourbon. I mean, so if you want to stay consistent, you couldn't reuse that barrel that way? Well, so legally we can't reuse it. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So for 
according to the letter of the law, all American whiskeys. So like if I want to call it a bourbon, if I want to call it a rye, if I want to call it a wheat whiskey, it always has to go into a brand new barrel. We cannot reuse that barrel. Oh, wow. That sounds like the wood, wood lobby that had something to do with that, man. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of interesting. So um, if you talk to whiskey producers over in Europe, mm -hmm. they'll throw a lot of shade on American whiskeys. They'll yeah. be like, it's really aggressive. It's really just in your face and brash. And that is because going into a brand new charred barrel, you're getting a lot of tannins. Yeah. You're getting a lot of more striking flavors, whereas with European whiskey, specific, specifically scotch, you're going into used barrels. Yeah, yeah. So that initial aging, you get a lot of those really aggressive oak notes that are coming off of a brand new barrel. Once that's done, though, like once you've aged and you've harvested that barrel, a lot of those harsher notes are gone. They've smoothed out. So you're going to start noticing more of those vanillas. You're going to start noticing more of those kind of coconut notes in a used barrel as opposed to a brand new one. That's why you see finishing a lot with American whiskeys is rather than obviously be like, we can't go into this used barrel, but if I can get my hands on a rum barrel or if I can uh. get my hands on a rye barrel, I can finish my bourbon in it, and it's going to lend the notes of the rye whiskey that was in that barrel. So say you did mm -hmm. reuse a barrel, <laughs> a bourbon barrel with some more bourbon. Mm -hmm. You could not sell that batch, or you couldn't sell it and call it bourbon? We couldn't sell it and call it bourbon. Um, we could, if it was 80% corn, we could call it corn whiskey. <laughs> yeah. So like corn whiskey basically can't be aged, or if it is aged, it can only be aged in used barrels. You should call it Viertal. There you go. <laughs> I mean, I, I, when I saw your name, I was thinking, that name has to be on the label, man, because I can think of, it just sounds cool. Like, what yeah. are we doing? I was like, man, we were doing shots of Viertal, man. <laughs> it was rough, you know? Yeah, be, right. Maybe you can do that. I'm serious. Just a thought. But yeah, there's, <laughs> I mean, I always tell people, so we've got this lovely document called the BAM, the Beverage Alcohol Manual, okay. that basically tells us how we have to produce our spirits so we can label them. Is that, now is that a federal thing? Yes. Or is that, okay. Yeah, that's a federal thing. Now, are there are there state, not not in distribution, mm -hmm. in production, are there state regulations that, that are different from state to state? Uh, not in terms of know? production, okay. really. Yeah. Um, you have definitely different laws in terms of distribution. distribution yeah, I knew that. Um, yeah. But when it comes like to our production, we basically follow the federal guidelines. Okay. When you were in Kansas, um, what was the most popular? First thing, what were you producing out there? Mm -hmm. And what was popular since you were the, you know, kind of the new kid on the block? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have, can't really think of, you know, when you think of Kansas, I don't think of it being like the, you know, the heart of, of, of distilling country, whiskey country. Mm -hmm. what, what did they like? Well, so our big thing was, so my hometown, Dodge City, a lot of people know it from Gunsmith. Yeah, well, so I, Old West. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we had um, we had a white whiskey that was aged in used barrels. We had what we called our red eye, which okay. we did. We basically created a bourbon and then aged that in used barrels for longer. Okay. And then the bourbon as well. And of course, Kansas being wheat country, we did a lot of wheat whiskeys as well. So, so that was kind of the big thing out in Kansas was, you know, what I say, and I don't mean this in a negative in any way, uh, it's a meat and potatoes distiller. Sure. Like we had our set products, they were good, they were winning awards, they were selling. And so that was kind of when I started getting that itch to be like, I'm naturally a person who's like, how can we be changing this? How can we be doing something different? Yeah. So that's what attracted me from Kansas to 10th Ward is that, oh, you're going to let me do weird I don't know if I can swear or not. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I, was like, I get to do weird shit. Yeah. And I, I get to like challenge people's preconceived notions of these spirits. Yeah. And to me, that's amazing. And I love yeah. that. Well, that's what uh, jumped out at me when I was searching for uh, distillers to approach to, for this podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, when I saw that you all like to experiment and do different things. And, uh, and you are doing them. Uh, I, I am interested in that spice. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Definitely. This will be the... <laughs> Pour a little bit of this guy. Uh, it's a little cloudy right now. Oh, that's fine. It hasn't been racked off yet. But... One last question here. Yes. Maybe not be the last question. Go go. One last question. <laughs> I always like to ask this. Um, if there is a misconception that you've experienced about 
either 10th Ward Distillery or just about craft distilling in general, what would that be? And if you could clear it up for us if there is one that you've run into. The thing that frustrates me, having come from a bartending and hospitality side into the distilling side, and I will admit this was something I was bad about as a bartender as well, is if it's craft, it's garbage. Um, and unfortunately, it's true. There's a lot of not great craft <laughs> distilling going on right now. Um, but what I always encourage people to do is you're seeing people come into maturation. Uh-huh. Um, again, because it's so hard to get into the distilling industry with experience, a lot of that early stuff that was being produced by craft distilleries was probably pretty rough. But I would encourage people who have maybe gotten a little cagey Uh about trying their local distillery to tune back in and to to educate themselves as well, too. Because, like, that's one thing that we're big on at 10th Ward is education. You know, like, okay, why do we do it this way? Is Is it done purposefully or is this a flaw? And so that's what I would just encourage people to do is you're seeing some amazing things happening on a local level. Um, again, Frederick's a great example. You have us, you have McClintock, you have Puerto Rico distilling, you have Dragon, you have uh, miscellaneous out in Mount Airy. And every single one of us is putting out high quality spirits, but they're all very, very different. Yes. And, and that's also something I would say is while I think people are starting to learn, like with beer and wine, there's stuff beyond the Pilsners and the Lagers and the Chardonnays and the Merlots that people, I think I would encourage them to start learning more about the spirits that are being made as well. That this rum that you're going to taste that's made in Maryland isn't going to taste like Bacardi. Uh, this whiskey isn't going to taste like Jack Daniels or Jim Beam. And so that would be my, I guess, my big thing is just because it's local doesn't mean it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but by the same token, um, I've always put the call out to other distilleries. We always need to be stepping our game up. Yeah. Um, craft distilling is unique because, you know, the craft brewing movement came about because for a long time in the U.S. all you could get was those standard lockers, like yeah. those Pilsners. And there was a dearth of high quality beer. In terms of distilling, yeah, you have your long-term big houses that have been doing distilling, but they're still putting out really high-quality product. <laughs> so this wasn't for uh, necessarily from a, oh, we're going to bring back these old styles as more of a, we want to create something unique. And again, and something regional, too. Yeah. I think you've done a really great job. Thank yeah, you, Mark. And I, wanna, I, appreciate I, really appreciate, <laughs> I really appreciate your time. Uh, I will be back. Um, I plan to frequent Frederick more. Please do. Uh, and uh, thanks a lot. I, I, I'll, I really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting us on. It's been absolutely fun. Great. I'm going to finish this spice uh, whiskey. Bye-bye. Well, let me tell you, <laughs> that's it. And I had a fantastic time at 10th Ward Distilling Company in Frederick, Maryland. And I know you would too. So listen, I'd like to thank Mark, Monica, Amanda, and all the great folks at 10th Ward Distilling for being so generous with their time. If you're ever in the Frederick, Maryland area, put 10th Ward on your must-do list. Trust me, you will not regret it. I would like to ask you to please subscribe to the pod. If you haven't done so yet, I will introduce you to some of the best folks in the DMV and surrounding area. That's a promise. That is a promise. So please tell your friends about us and have them tune in. They will thank you for it. I know I will. Listen, I'm all about promoting the craft beverage industry in the DMV because it's some of the best. I'll say, I'll be modest and say it's some of the best in the nation. I think it's the best in the nation. If you agree, please share the pod. That's our mission. Help us fulfill it, please. This podcast was produced by my friends at Q9. If they can make me sound good, imagine what they could do with somebody with talent. You know what I mean? If you're in the podcast biz and you got a little bit of talent, please Google Q9 and give them a look. You'll thank me later. They'll help you out. I'll be back next week with another craft beverage maker in the DMV to introduce you to. Thank you for listening. 
I know that there's a ton of media you could be listening to right now, or you could just be, I don't know, binge watching Ratchet on Netflix and trying to make sense out of that. You could be doing a lot of things besides listening to me. So I appreciate that. That's why I work so hard to get you access to the people who are making the beverages that you want to hear about. I truly appreciate your time investment in me. And I wanted to let you know, remember, always have a designated driver so I can see you next time. East Vicata. You have been listening to Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, part of the Fletcher Podcast Group. You can reach Howard at his website, barreltastingpod.com. I'm Asia Blue. Thanks for listening. See you next time.